uh, there are at least uh, four significant and perennial questions that give shape to a person's worldview. Uh, the way that they understand the world in which they live, the way that they understand their own lives um, in this world. One, where did everything come from? How did the universe begin? Did it have a beginning at all? This is the question of origins. Two, for what purpose do we exist? Why am I here? Why is there anything rather than nothing? This is the question of purpose, the meaning of life. Three, what defines a person? Who am I? That's the question of identity. And where are we headed? Where is history moving? What happens after death? Does anything happen? That is the question of destiny. And as we continue working through Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 now, Paul zeroes in on that fourth question, the question of destiny, the question of history, and where is history moving? Where am I headed? What happens after life on earth? So the text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Listen now to God's word. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. One of the very important points to recognize about this text is that the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and the reunion of being always with the Lord is couched in a very practical and particular context, and that is the context of physical death, uh, the loss of loved ones, those who, as Paul refers to, asleep, those who are asleep, particularly those in the Lord he's speaking about. So the Thessalonians were likely asking questions such as, what happens upon death? Where is my mother or my grandfather who was and is a believer who has passed away? Will we see them again? Is there any hope beyond death? What's coming in the future? So Paul is likely addressing those kinds of questions, questions that had surfaced in this church. Among all the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians is unique in that every chapter, with the exception of one, Second Thessalonians 3, Paul refers to the second coming of Christ. All five chapters of First Thessalonians and two of the three chapters of Second Thessalonians. Consider just a couple of those passages. 
In this letter, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, We give thanks that you turned to God from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Into the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? 1 Thessalonians 3, the next chapter, in his pastoral prayer uh, for them. He prayed that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so chapter after chapter, we could continue, Paul saturates these letters with the reality of Christ's second coming. So he's pointing the eyes of their hearts to God's unfolding story of redemption, to the consummation to the resurrection at the end of history. The, the theological term or language undergirding what Paul's talking about is the word uh, eschatology. It's the study of the last days or the end times. More broadly, it speaks about God's unfolding purposes according to his timetable. So that uh, eschatology refers to how God is unfolding his redemptive story through the Old Testament into the New Testament. And forward. We see the word eschatos throughout the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 1, the opening verses, the author says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, there's the word eschatos or eschatu, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. But why here in Thessalonians is Paul? addressing the last days. It's not to give us a, a sound theology or a sound eschatology to be able to win a theological argument regarding eschatology or the end times. Paul's purpose is very practical and personal to their situation. And what is he wanting to do? He's wanting to shore up and encourage their souls so that amidst the reality of death, and loss, they would not grieve as those who do not have hope. That's central to this passage. And the first thing I want us to see, that we are to be a people who grieve not hopelessly. But if we grieve, we grieve full of hope. That's found in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Asleep, a, a word referring to the body laying in the ground. It's actually where we get the word cemetery from. About those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. What an important and practical point, because that's where we live in this world. We know grief, but not without hope. We know loss and pain and trials and suffering, but not without loss. Paul does not try to discourage or diminish the experience of grief or sorrow, nor does he deny the reality of death. What does he do? He uses comparative language. He says, you do not have to grieve as others. That is, the pagan world, who do not have hope. 
The, the experience of grief and suffering is common among all people. Believer, non-believer. That's not the divider. The divider is hope. That's what distinguishes the church and the Christian. And that's why I think in our culture, death is very taboo. Increasingly. Because there is no hope. There is no remedy. And so so death is ignored. Death is denied. Sometimes death is kind of dressed up uh, to somehow make the pain and the reality of it less than what it actually is. I, I think we see this in words I read recently from a freelance journalist, Erica Buist. I don't know her background. I don't know what her religious uh, inclinations might be. But her, t- her article was entitled, Death Doesn't Need Our Respect. Let's Celebrate Life at Funerals. In the article, she writes, Laughter, joy, and celebration aren't words that are traditionally associated with funerals. But in the past few years, we've seen the rise of the happy funeral. With celebration becoming a well-established trend, Death wins every time, she says. It doesn't need our respect. It robs us of our self-esteem, our individuality. A celebratory funeral does not mean trivializing death, but it helps take away its power. Does it? I know in the 70 to 80 memorial services that I've participated in over the years, there have certainly been moments of celebration, certainly for those who died in the Lord who rests from their labors, as the scripture says, even moments of laughter, uh, remembering the the individual who passed away in their sense of humor or a particular circumstance. But friends, the remedy for death is not celebration. The remedy for death is not laughter. The remedy for death is not some emotional uplift. The the, The remedy for death is what Paul focuses our eyes upon. New resurrection life. And so what Paul does is crucial. In the midst of what appears hopeless or despairing, Paul reminds them of the truth of their blessed future through the resurrection. The resurrection first of Christ, and then later, our own resurrection. Remember these believers and their context. They were not only facing sorrow, clearly at the loss of loved ones, whom Paul is now addressing, Uh, But they had been facing persecution. We saw that in the first chapter. This church in Thessalonica was birthed in the midst of opposition and suffering. And Paul is giving to them a pair of spectacles to see reality and see the world the way it is according to God's revelation. There's an important point here, as the counselor Paul Tripp said, we are always living our lives not based on the facts of our experience, but on our interpretation of those facts. We're constantly interpreting our experience. The wilderness generation who came out of Egypt is case in point. Though God had delivered them from slavery... In the book of Numbers, chapter 6, it records this. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord. They wept and they said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. At no cost. 
the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. What are they doing? They poorly interpret the past. They're thinking of Egypt, a place of slavery and death, as something desirable and pleasant. Oh, if we could only go back. How could they say, oh, that we had meat to eat at no cost? No cost. They were enslaved. They had a distorted view of reality, of the past. They also had a distorted view of the present and of God. They say there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. In other words, they're asking, doesn't God care? How could God allow this? Where is God in this? And their distorted view led them to say, now our strength is dried up. So circumstances can do that to us. Misinterpretation of reality, the way things actually are, can do that to us. And when it came to the Thessalonians, Paul didn't want their circumstances to pull them into hopelessness or despair. He did not want them to misinterpret the Christian faith or the Christian life by thinking that physical death is the end of the road. And that very notion is increasingly defining the way our society views this life. Death is the end. Just one week ago, I heard these words from a young female entrepreneur. She said this, We have to use each day we are here to make our mark, to help save animals, to help the earth, and to help folks eat much better and healthier, delicious foods, to really take advantage of these days because we don't even know if tomorrow will come. If you heard her words when she said them, you could sense uh, that kind of despair at the end of life that she believes is the reality, that there is nothing more, but you can sense the pull for purpose in life. Ruling and stewarding, stewarding God's creation is good. It's our cultural mandate from God. Help animals. That's good. To promote well-being is good. But there's no ultimate hope in this. There's no ultimate hope in this. There is no hope in the popular notion today of mere human progress. Why? Because death comes to all, and there is no earthly progress that holds hope for the dead. And so Paul is giving these believers the necessary spectacles to rightly live this life and to have hope for the future. It's the spectacles that enable a person to behold and to believe in the resurrection of life, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so he says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so our hope, that which lifts the believer out of distress, is not wishful thinking, it's hope. Confident anticipation and expectation of what is coming in the future and that hope is based on something that has happened in the past. That's what's so significant. What was so shocking about the resurrection of Christ was not the idea that one could be raised. It wasn't the idea of resurrection. It wasn't the concept of resurrection. 
the people of God had known about the whole notion of resurrection. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, the Lord said, Through the prophet, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In in Ezekiel chapter 37, the Lord spoke through Ezekiel and gave that wonderful picture of that valley of dry bones. And, And the prophet began to speak from the Lord. Say to the bones, come together. Flesh, cover the bones. Skin, cover the flesh. Breathe into the bones. And, and, and the picture is of a whole vast army standing up and coming to, to life. The, the Old Testament people understood the notion of resurrection. Think of Jesus' earthly ministry in John 11, after the death of Lazarus. Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is before Christ's own death and resurrection. She knew and she believed in the resurrection of the dead. So it wasn't the notion of resurrection that shocked the Roman and Jewish world. What shocked the world was that a man was crucified, dead, and buried, and then he rose from the dead, not at the end of history, but in the middle of history, turning the world upside down not only taking upon himself the curse of sin, but the natural fallen order of life that ends in death was destroyed. Life beyond death was now possible. And it began to create a wake of new life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met fought and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. That's why Jesus is called the first fruits, because there are many more fruits to come at the last day. And we already are called new creations in Christ because we are united to him, who is the resurrection and life. So it's almost as if in a great play or drama, what you would Expect at the end a vindication, a resolution. That which would come at the end in the final act has burst upon the stage in the middle of the story. In the middle of the drama. Death is overcome. And Paul specifically emphasizes the physical death and the physical resurrection of Christ. That may seem strange to to our modern ears that Uh, Paul's having to remind these believers of of the death and resurrection of Christ. That would have been at the heart of the gospel that he taught them when he was with them. It would have been certainly reinforced by Timothy when he was later sent to encourage them. But Paul was facing at least two opposing views in the Greek-Roman world about death and the afterlife. One was a movement called Gnosticism that preceded Paul and Jesus' day and carried on for a while after Among other things, the Gnostics believed that while the spirit world could be good, the material, the physical world, was inherently evil. Uh, In fact, in one of the Gnostic or false gospels circulated following the time of Paul and Jesus, in it, Jesus' death was made to be only spiritual, not physical, really suggesting that Jesus 
was not physical. He had the appearance of flesh, but was more like a phantom or ghost. So Paul's wanting to drive home the physicality, the literal aspect of Christ's physical death. Because apart from that, we have no hope in the resurrection if Christ was not physically crucified and physically raised from the dead. Secondly, Paul was writing against a notion that not only existed in his day, but I think it still exists in our day. And that is the idea of the immortal soul. That the soul not only lives in the body and continues to exist apart from the body after death, but that the soul doesn't really need the body. In fact, it may be better off without the body. To this, Paul presses the physical, literal resurrection of Christ from the dead and our own physical resurrection. We were never intended to be disembodied people. Upon our death, certainly, while our bodies lie in the ground, we and our spirit go to be with the Lord. We even see it in our text here. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In Philippians, Paul says, I would rather die and to be with the Lord. That would be greater by far. The dead in Christ are with God even now, like that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12. But the end to which we are looking is not our own death and presence with the Lord. Ultimately, we're looking and are to look to that final day at the consummation when we will be resurrected with a body like our Lord's. So Paul brings us to that final day, kind of transports us to that final day. And he says in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Three sounds ring out, Paul mentions. A cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God. All at the time of Christ's coming, the Lord will descend from heaven. And, and Paul wants to assure that it's not only those who are living at the time of Christ who will have everlasting life. This is why I think he emphasizes, no, the dead in Christ will rise. They will rise first. Meet the Lord in the air, and those who are alive on the earth will meet the Lord in the air as the Lord descends, and we will, for all eternity, be on the new earth with the Lord in glory. So we will always be with the Lord. It's a glorious reunion. The same voice that said to the body of Lazarus, who lay dead, unable to hear, unable to move, unable to respond, by the command of Christ's voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead made alive. That same voice will give a cry of command, a voice that will shake the earth on the last day, and we will know a glorious reunion. 
whether you are a pre-millennialist, all-millennialist, post-millennialist, eschatological optimist, that's my term, end times pessimist, whatever you are, that last and final day is to fill us with hope and encouragement. We, we need to fix our hearts and minds upon this truth. Uh, whether we feel discouraged today or doubtful about what tomorrow might bring, or we're feeling despair amidst a, a trying circumstance in our life, or we're regretful about the past or anxious, Paul lifts our minds to that final day to see and define our lives, not by our birth and our physical death, but by the resurrection of Christ and our life forevermore in Him, our blessed future as those who will be raised to new life. Let's pray together. A gracious Heavenly Father, we give you praise for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. We pray that that would grant us spiritual life to behold that great consummation, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection to everlasting life. We pray that that would fill us with hope today, encouragement in our hearts, knowing that we are yours, that we are in your hands gracious and all-powerful hands. Continue, O Lord, to minister to us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.